I would love for a 13 year old who is working through issues of gender identity to be able to walk into a Target or a Sephora or an Ulta and see some imagery related to our brand and feel connected to the idea that there are people like me out there or people who I aspire to be that are beautiful and living their best life and expressing themselves authentically without shame. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. It's estimated that the beauty industry has a market cap of more than $500 billion in the United States alone. Household names such as L'Oreal and Estee Lauder and retailers such as Sephora and Ulta are big business and they influence nearly every part of our society. From magazine covers to Instagram, brick and mortar stores to online marketplaces, beauty products reflect who we are as a society. For years, the industry has employed persons of all backgrounds and gender identities. More recently, industry leaders have leaned into the diversity and inclusion movement with initiatives such as Pull Up or Shut Up, designed to force transparency among beauty brands on their diversity initiatives. But Laura Kraber noticed something else was missing from the market. So many of the creative minds in the beauty industry toiled behind the scenes to produce products and images that fit neatly into gender roles and beauty stereotypes. Though not an entrepreneur by nature, Kraber watched and listened to her kids as they navigated effortlessly through the world of gender fluidity when an idea struck her and nagged at her conscience. The Yale grad who worked in marketing throughout her career and was keenly familiar with the startup culture never saw herself as an entrepreneur. But the more she researched the cosmetic industry, she realized that while the industry was rich with talent of all gender identities, there were few, if any, products that truly spoke to them as consumers. Kraber had no background in cosmetics, and it was risky to enter an industry with so many established brands, but the idea wouldn't leave her mind. Thus, We Are Fluid was born. We Are Fluid showcases and celebrates gender-expansive beauty and underrepresented faces and voices and supports young people's self-expression and creativity. We talked to founder Laura Kraber about executing on a vision, remaining focused during a pandemic, and driving fearlessly into her mission. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Mori of Mori Creative Studios, executive producer of the social justice podcast Newsbeat and host of Grow for Good. And I'm speaking today with Laura Kraber from We Are Fluid, a mission-driven beauty brand based in Brooklyn. How's that for alliteration? It's right down the road, actually, from our headquarters, which is cool. And uh, Laura, thank you so much for being here to uh, talk about your company. Thanks so much for inviting me. Really happy to be here today. Laura, preparing for this episode was a little bit um, humbling and exciting for me at the same time, because it covers a part of the business and cultural spectrum that really I'm only beginning to understand myself, which is gender fluidity. So I'm trying to offer a disclaimer up front here that, will, that I will undoubtedly trip over my words at some point, but that's part of the learning process here. So I like to be open about that, that I, you know, I don't anticipate to get this right from the, the get-go. But in doing so, I think, you know, you'll help me and the listeners understand the market you serve as well as your business model. So disclaimer is given, it's out of the way. But in our world, language is really critical because it creates a shared baseline of understanding. So before we even get into the business side of things, can you give us a brief overview of the wider concept of gender as a spectrum rather than a binary concept? Sure, sure. 
my personal history is that I was really inspired by my teenage kids and their friends and the children of my friends. Sort of entering in the tween and teen years, just, you know, I was in a position where I started to learn about gender as a spectrum as opposed to a binary. They, them pronouns, trans versus non-binary versus gender non-conforming. And essentially, the concept is, from my understanding, gender is literally a spectrum and that everybody may fall along that spectrum in a different place. So the traditional ideas of male and female, male over here, female over there on the other side, and all of these traits that go with them uh, really is not an accurate representation of the human experience. And that many of us uh, really don't feel that we fit into those neat little boxes of male and female. And even as what I would consider myself a cisgender woman, meaning that I was assigned female at birth biologically, and I feel like a woman and I live my life as a woman, I still don't think, you know, especially as a feminist, that traits that are considered feminine or uh, all the baggage on women to be feminine or what those include and entail, I don't think they really are of service, both for men and for women. So that really was my, from a personal standpoint, that was kind of my in to understanding was to say, how is this serving us to have these boxes that are so rigid and these traits and these characteristics uh, that are so limiting and don't really allow people to express their full selves and to feel comfortable expressing themselves and being themselves. And from there, you know, when you kind of start to think about gender not as male or female, but, oh, you know, that these are simply empty categories. It really opens up possibility of, of how you could live your life and, and who you can be. And I think that's important for everyone, regardless of where you personally feel that you stand. Right. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes I feel like in, in the U.S. that we have a, a limited cultural window, which can lead to myopia. And there, there was a piece in National Geographic that Sage had unearthed for me. Sage is our, our wonderful producer who is the brains of the operation. It explained gender this way, that gender is an amalgamation of several elements, chromosomes, anatomy, hormones, psychology, and culture. And I found that helpful because nowhere does it mention sexual orientation, which is you know, discussion, whether it's with my kids or my friends or their friends, sexual orientation and gender are often conflated, which seems to confuse the discussion a bit. So can you speak to how this gender fluid movement, if I can call it that, is helping to clarify these distinctions and open our minds? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot. I mean, this is certainly not my area and I'm not an expert. And, you know, I run a beauty brand. I don't come from any kind of background in gender studies or any kind of counseling in that regard, but certainly there's been a lot of education that I think a lot of us have absorbed from Katie Couric and National Geographic and all sorts of news coverage and documentaries and books, memoirs. But essentially the idea is that your biological sex and your gender identity and your sexual orientation are three distinct things that don't necessarily go together in any way. Everybody could be different along those lines. So that's really the concept that who you're attracted to is your sexual orientation versus who you feel that you are as your, and can be called your gender identity and how you express that gender, maybe your gender expression. So you may have been born with what we call assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth, meaning your, you know, your biological makeup may, or the chromosomes parts of it may have um, male or female traits, but you may express yourself and walk through the world as a different gender. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole category of non-binary, which just anecdotally from where I sit looks to be a growing category of people who find that they're most comfortable identifying as either gender non-conforming or, or non-binary and using they, them pronouns as opposed to he or she. 
I personally have just been very inspired by that thinking and that by that such young people, children in many cases, and teens and adolescents, which is arguably the hardest stage of life, are really fighting these battles so that the rest of us can catch up and learn and understand new ways of being human, really, new ways of living our lives and thinking of ourselves and other people. It's amazing how these conversations open in the home. I mean, I remember one of the first makeup tutorials that I saw my daughters doing together was with James Charles. Whereas I looked at it and I said, what is happening right now? Because it was all fresh to me. It didn't occur to them. There was nothing unusual about it. And to me, that was one of the first eye-opening moments where I just sort of sat back as a parent and said, okay, so this is happening and this is different from my experience or what I anticipated at this point, but they don't see anything unusual about this. And that's really beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to have the opportunity. The gift of parenting is that we are taken along on such an adventure in so many ways, but because of our love for our children and our genuine concern and desire to understand them, we have an opportunity to really change our thinking and expand our thinking in so many different ways, in so many different levels. Uh, I think that's one of the greatest gifts of parenting. Yeah. So with our baseline set, understanding a, a bit of the language of the market that you serve at a higher level, let's move into, I guess, the business discussion, because I'm always fascinated by the entrepreneur origin story. And your company is, is a couple of years old, but you've received some pretty incredible acclaim for your approach and the business model. What were you doing before you launched the business? And then what was the trigger where you said, I have to do this? Thanks for asking that. So I had most recently, before starting We Are Fluid, I had been director of strategy for a health and wellness e-commerce brand. Previous to that, I'd, I'd done a lot of digital marketing agency work like you do. I worked at digital PR agencies. I worked at some early you know, startups in, the, you know, in Web 1.0 in the late 90s. And I had, in my 40s, I just, I just really started to wanting to do work that I believed in. I became increasingly interested in nutrition and health. And I went back to school to study nutrition, which is how I landed at this health and wellness startup, which I really loved. It's no longer with us, sadly. But the truth is, the e-commerce bug bit me. I just mm. fell in love with the whole process of cultivating an online audience, making connections through social media and email, and building, you know, using content to connect to people. Um, and you know, health-related content, that's definitely a need to know. Um, Google search really helps like if you're worried that you might have a magnesium deficiency you know dr google's right there for you or <laughs> trying to lose weight or you know whatever your issue health issue is it's kind of a relatively easy issue the internet's the first place you go and it's a, it's a great kind of path to purchase so you know that really was my moment when i said wow this is so much fun and at the same time as my kids were you know growing up in new york city going to art schools around all sorts of kids who were really into fashion you know i'm a I was a, you know, a teenager in the 80s. I love 80s culture. <laughs> a lot of us Gen Xers do. And yep. we were really into edgy brands. I mean, cool, edgy, not the typical mainstream brands. And I, and I was sort of surprised looking around how few edgy makeup brands there were given how popular makeup was. I mean, the story you told about your daughters watching James Charles tutorials, it's like between the YouTube beauty tubers, as we call them, and so many celebrity-driven makeup brands. It's really captured the hearts and minds of, of young people. Watching all so many of my kids and my friends' kids and my kids' friends experiment with their gender identity and really take a very much more fluid approach to gender 
and at the same time wearing makeup and especially nail polish, it just it really just came to me as an idea of like, wow, this is this would be a great brand. This brand should exist. Yeah. It didn't occur to me. I wasn't looking to start a brand. I wasn't looking to do anything like that. I just thought it was a great idea. And I kept searching online thinking, this, this must exist. There must be a brand like that. And I couldn't find one. And I just started talking <laughs> about it with people, you know, because I'd had this experience working at a small startup that was just selling things online. I really, I was, I was scared to start my own company. It wasn't something I ever thought I would really do, but I was very inspired by my experience of just this simple process of connecting with people online and selling them a product and sending it to them and creating a community. And that was really my vision for We Are Fluid was this beautiful, inclusive, online community where people could authentically express themselves and feel comfortable and feel also inspired. All right. So you connected with me on the 80s thing as a, as a fellow Gen Xer. And it's funny because my, you know how kids get into retro culture and I find it fascinating, fun and insulting at the same time that uh, they're starting to get into all the, the music and the videos that we grew up with and as retro culture. And it's so old to them. And I'm just like, God, this still feels so new. It's, I know, even the 90s are old to them. I know. And my youngest daughter, she, she lumps everything into the 90s. So everything, because the 80s is just so far away that that can't even be a real time. So to her, everything is the 90s. But there is something about that 80s glam that you mentioned that I was thinking about with, in terms of the beauty industry as this, this is massive spectrum because you fall into, I, I believe what you call the color cosmetics spectrum of the beauty industry. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us to, you know, for people that aren't as familiar with your industry as to really what that means? Well, I think it really just, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I didn't come from the beauty industry at all. I did not have any background in in beauty and makeup, but really color cosmetics is as opposed to skincare. So, you know, moisturizers and serums and toners and cleansers, those are all skincare, whereas lipstick and eyeshadow and foundation are concealers. Those are color cosmetics. Will you bridge the gap? And do you think at some point you'll be on all sides of that spectrum? Well, it's possible. Sure. I mean, you know, skincare is definitely having a moment. It's something that people increasingly care about. You know, they're all very crowded fields. I think Mm. when I was looking at the market, doing my research before we launched, I really, I was thinking about the target demographic and just, I was shocked that there wasn't a brand more like ours out there already. But what I wasn't really thinking about is how crowded the color cosmetics field is. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's an incredibly crowded space. It's a very saturated market. It's so anything from, you know, buying a search term, you know, so for example, my example, like the kinds of digital marketing expertise that I had from working at a supplement business is so different because I mean, I think things keep changing as you know, with social media marketing and search-based marketing because of prices and many issues. Yeah. Cost of acquisition is through the roof right now. Yeah. It's just crazy. So having you know a brand that started in 2010 just has like a huge leg up versus one that started in 2018 because of the change in costs and and this, frankly the algorithms especially from Facebook. Skincare is a very attractive area. You know we're scrappy. You know we're a bootstrap startup. We are adding products little by you know we're not in a position financially to just be like here's our collection of 100 product lines. You know sure. we're doing it little by little and growing at a, you know, a steady and consistent rate as opposed to, you know, we're not able to, to just like launch so much. But yeah, I love skincare and I think kids love skincare more and more. So that's certainly something we could think about. 
And you seem to be making in this ground and pound strategy that you have, you seem to be making very personal, direct connections with your consumer base and gaining some loyalty and passion from the beginning. Is that accurate? I mean, is there like a real effort to connect one-on-one? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to start a brand when you are not the target demographic. So I think so many successful brands might start with Nike, you know, Uh, Phil Knight was a runner. He wanted better shoes. You know what I mean? So it's like, he was making a product for himself. And, and I think that is the beautiful best way to do things is when you're creating a product, when you are your market and you really get it. Uh, I'm not in that position, unfortunately. So f- all I have is my ability to connect to my consumers and really understand them. And you know, the truth is, as I, I run the business as a, as a mom, I love, I love my kids. I love them all. Yeah. I love, I mean, the, the emails we get, the kind of feedback we get, the direct messages on Instagram from some of the, sometimes from parents, um, but a lot of times from the kids themselves, it's really heartwarming. It, it really validates what we're trying to do. I was inspired very much by the Marion Wright Edelman quote, you can't be what you can't see. I think is how she puts it. And, you know, that at the end of the day, that's kind of like our business or our, our brand in a, in a nutshell. It's like we are just trying to showcase and celebrate these underrepresented faces and voices in the fashion and beauty industry who are gender expansive identities because so many young people identify with them and they're not easily found. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really the inspiration, I would say. So connecting to those people to help us grow this brand in a way that is authentic. I mean, authenticity is so important for us because that's really what we have. You know, we're not, that's our difference. I mean, so many beauty brands are run by multinational major corporations and there's boardrooms and people making big decisions around a lot of money and they can connect with their consumers, but in a much far more distant way. There's not a lot of distance between me and the consumer. I do all the customer service. Pre-COVID, we got to do a lot of events. So being based in New York City really helped us in that we could go to parties, be at all sorts of pop-ups, you know, we can kind of bring our products to the people. We connect, we give out a lot of makeup to queer artists and musicians. So, you know, we do a lot of collabs and partnerships with people who are in our community so that we can reach their audience and we can support them with free product. Um, and that's been a really fun way. So really just meeting people and talking to them has been, it's been huge for us. Yeah. So, I I do actually want to come back to running a business during a pandemic. But before we do that, there's another piece of your mission that at least is apparent in the way that you speak about the company through your marketing channels, that is less obvious to people. Like many of the mission-driven companies that we talk about, they often tend to think much more holistically about their brands and the impact that they have on community, the environment, social issues, and the like. You've also taken great pains to ethically source your products. And that's sort of like the, the hidden piece of this is that you actually have a forward-facing mission, but you are going the next steps to ethically source products as well. Can you explain what that means, how you source, and what it's like to do that in the cosmetics industry? For me, really coming from a nutrition and health background, I did not want to make products that had any potentially harmful ingredients in them. So. Clean beauty is kind of its own category. It's a confusing category. It means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, like Target, I know, has a very well-publicized kind of, this is what we mean by clean when we say clean. It doesn't contain these ingredients. But it's not like certified organic or something like that. It's something that different brands can use the term and throw it around, and it's sort of meaningless. And surveys and the initial research we did as when we were conceiving of the brand, our 
audience did not seem to care about clean. That was not a priority for them. Price was a priority because when you're selling to young people, you know, from 13 and up, there might, might be allowance money, might be babysitting money. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like, oh, I just whipped out the credit card and spent $100 on some fancy organic skin creams. So that being said, it was just personally important to me that, for example, parabens and phthalates were not in any of our formulas. Vegan, cruelty-free, of course, and that's kind of a no-brainer now. I don't think there's really any brand that's not cruelty-free, even though we all see we're cruelty-free as if it's unique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I don't think it is. I'm not sure, but uh, I think that's pretty standard. And then vegan is another issue. I don't, you know, not coming from the beauty industry, not having access to like huge research reports or anything. I wasn't really sure about that. And our initial liquid lipstick formulation, liquid lipstick is a really cool, very pigmented matte lipstick that lasts all day. However, it can be very drying on your lips. And we found a formula that we love, but it was made with beeswax, which technically made it not vegan. But all of our other products happen to be vegan. So, you know, we got a lot of pushback and we got a lot of requests. So we we changed that formula Mm. and we made it vegan as well. So I think that those are the key things for us. Um, but we do not, you know, we still use a small amount of mineral oil in some of our products and some clean beauty aficionados say, oh, mineral oil, you know, it's petroleum based, not good. You know, so there's a, you know, there's a lot of choices that you make and that was one of them. We're, you know, in terms of packaging, we started using glass jars for a lot of our products because they're more easily recyclable than sometimes with plastic, different types of plastic can't be recycled together. You know, we try to keep our packaging minimal, you know, just in terms of waste. So that's that holistic view that so many of the companies that we speak to really kind of share, where they're, they're constantly driving to be better and to challenge their own assumptions about the industries that they're in. Like we had recently interviewed David Heath from Bombas, is the apparel line that donates socks to homeless shelters for every pair sold. One of the things that struck me was this idea that mission-driven companies seem to be just inspired by how deep they can continue to fulfill their missions as much as the bottom line. It's like It becomes like an obsession, like we came this far, I wonder how much further we can go. Do you and your team constantly find yourselves challenging these industry norms and asking each other, like, can we do better here? That's so interesting. You know, it's a great question. I think from my standpoint, it's more about the people. It's about the relationships and the people and treating people with respect you know, we're a small brand with a small product line. We have a very small footprint, uh, especially compared to other B brands. But everybody hires models for photo shoots. Everybody hires photographer. You know, whatever you're doing, you're interacting with people. And for me, that's what's really important is that our values and our ethics come across with every interaction with anybody. And I think also, you know, to your point around the different people that you've been interviewing for this really great series is if you start a business because you have a desire. Like I, I was more interested in affirming gender expansive identities in some way than I was in actually lipstick or nail polish. Right. So the, the concepts of the brand were more important. So if you start a business from that place of I'm following a passion that's very important to me as a human, not as a, it's not about the bottom line. It just opens up all of your opportunities to continue to build your business focused on humans as opposed to the bottom line. And, you know, we're independent. I think not everybody has that privilege. We're, as of now, independent. I don't, I don't have VCs breathing down my neck in terms of showing quarterly growth that is X, Y, and Z. So we're going to hang on that thought and revisit it in a moment. 
First, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk to Laura about launching a business in a fairly cluttered market and how her team is navigating the new COVID economy and the revolution in the gender fluid market. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back. You're listening to the Grow for Good podcast with Jed Mori, Mori Creative. My guest today is Laura Kraber, founder of We Are Fluid, a mission-driven beauty brand based in Brooklyn, New York. So Laura, where we finished up right before the break is a place I'd like to revisit. More talking about where you are, I guess, right now in your entrepreneurial journey. As we talked about before the show, we examine two different type of for-profit companies, the ones that are organized for mission purpose, but happen to be for-profit, and the others that are what we'll call regular businesses, but happen to do so much good that they're more identified by the good they do rather than the product they have. And Fluid seems to be somewhere neatly in between. You know what I mean? Like, it, And this may seem like a strange question, but at this point in your journey, I know where you started now, but do you feel like you identify more as the mission-driven founder or by the tactical day-to-day CEO of a company? Wow. I don't know if I have a choice to choose one of those. I think I have to be both of those. So I would Mm. say that, you know, I really, it's a small company. I'm very hands-on. So I'm definitely very tactical doing, you know, everything. But I, what motivates me and gets me up in the morning is, is our mission and, and the people that we work with. You know, when we first started, I didn't, I didn't grow up in intern culture. Maybe that's part of our age is, you know, being an intern, that was sort of a privilege uh, working for free to gain experience. That wasn't, some, that wasn't part of my background. Uh, I was working jobs to save money for college in summers and high school and all that stuff. But now kids all expect to intern and you have to intern. You can't get a job if you don't have experience. So. I tapped into interns and I actually, from the beginning, insisted on paying them a, a low wage, but something, because I think it's not fair. If once again, you're just reinforcing privilege if you only have offer non-unpaid internships because not everybody can afford those. Right. So that's been a huge part of what has made us successful is we have a really fabulous internship program, or I don't know if I should say a fabulous program. We have fabulous interns who work, <laughs> uh, have, some of whom have been with us for over two years, sort of throughout their college careers. And that keeps me connected to our mission because our interns are, are in our demographic, mostly, I guess you'd say, you know, gender nonconforming across the board in different ways and, we're, and love makeup. You know, that's the people who reach out to us and want to intern with us. So that's been a way for me on a day-to-day level to connect with our mission, which is it's so important to them to see this brand be out in the world and doing collabs with bigger brands and getting more and more well-known, building up our social followings, you know, all of those coming out with new products. Uh, and so that, that, I feel like the interns are the bridge for me between the mission and the day-to-day. Have you had the opportunity or even the desire to sort of geek out over product development? Do you find yourself excited now by the actual product development process? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, that's the unexpected joy. Yes, exactly. That's the fun part. You're, you know, you're not doing that every day. I think when 
people think, you know, when we watch the beauty tutorials and all that, we think that's what it's all about. Like, oh, what shade and new product. But, you know, you don't get to do that every day. But yeah, and, and colors. I mean, who doesn't love colors? So yeah, like we actually were just today having a meeting about our, our new nail shades for holiday and, you know, just so much fun. So much fun. And just playing with makeup. I mean, getting yeah. samples from different manufacturers and, you know, so yes, of course. It's, and and well, one thing that we do, you know, pre-COVID was we would do what we would call them uh, makeup testing parties. Um, because once you narrow down your shade, you know, the things you want, the shades or the, the color stories, you want to try them against all different skin tones. So we would sort of try to get 15 or 20 people over. I'd make a big dinner, drinks, food, trying on makeup and seeing how it all looked on the different, you know, how different and different people, what their opinions were. And that's kind of a fascinating thing. So brag about your team a little bit. Oh, well, my, my right hand is our creative director, Dev, who is just incredible. And I just lucked out uh, meeting them a couple years ago. I, you know, but back to what I was saying earlier, I've been so fortunate with the people that have reached out. And that was something I discovered early. You know, if someone signs up for our email list and they get one of our little promotional emails, which we send out usually no more than once a week, sometimes somebody will just hit reply and say, I love your brand. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm. And I always, well, I write everybody back, but I certainly write those people back. And I have recruited my team from those, those emails, essentially, and then through word of mouth. So sometimes somebody knows somebody, knows somebody. Um, and all of that stuff was really hard. And when we think about starting a business in the beginning, it was really hard when you don't have a brand yet. Nobody knows who you are yet. And you're trying to communicate what you're about. And, and people always were like, oh, you're a makeup brand for trans people. Oh, so, you know, and I was like, no, that's really not what this is. But that still seems to stick in people's mind. It's, it's kind of a reduction of, of our concept. But so, so Dev has, has really helped in so many levels across the board in terms of product development and marketing and social and just creative and collabs. And then we've got a couple interns that have been with us for a really long time, uh, a couple from FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is a great New York City SUNY school, Hawa and Jasmine, just beautiful people. And then, you know, what's been really fascinating living through this crazy COVID time is all these students then had to disperse and go back home when their dorms closed suddenly in March. And it was all just like, oh my craziness and parents freaking out. And I bought you a plane ticket for tonight, drop everything, get out, you know, get out of New York. <laughs> and I understand. I mean, it was a panicky time for all of us here in the city. It was uh, strange. It was a devastating, you know, it just kept getting worse. But there's a way in which it's, I don't know, I'm not exactly, I can't speak for them, but I do feel that just how we have a weekly team call and they're continuing to work and they don't have anything else to do. I mean, that's the weird thing is when you lose all your social life and all your activities and all the things that you used to do, your jobs, a lot of them had sort of jobs at the admin office of their school or, you know, working at the cafe or something. It opens up a little more time for us. So we were very fortunate in that, you know, from a business standpoint, COVID didn't impact us too negatively in the way that so many other businesses were damaged. Yeah. So, and I want to come back to COVID in a second, but you touched on something else about the industry. So maybe it would be helpful to pull back with a wider lens for a second. One of our recent interviews was with a gentleman named Marcus Baskerville, who is a blackhead brewer of a brewery in Texas, which is in a predominantly white male industry. And he was very open about his experience in his industry, though, even though it was predominantly white and is that the industry itself happens to be remarkably welcoming and supportive of diversity efforts. 
what's it like in the beauty industry? Is it, I have this image of it being a big business, first of all, run by major conglomerates, potentially cutthroat. Have there been any uh, pushback on your efforts to kind of break through with a, a new mindset in the industry itself? Or has the industry welcomed you with open arms? Well, I'm not that connected to the industry, and I wouldn't know what a welcoming would look like or a pushback. Certainly, we're not carried in Sephora or Ulta. So in that sense, we haven't been welcomed. But mm. <laughs> I mean, I do think that, you know, for so long, members of the LGBTQ plus community have been the behind the scenes in, in fashion and beauty and sort of really not valued or touted or promoted or seen and heard in the ways that they should have been given their outsized role as the creative force of fashion and beauty. And so to have a brand that puts LGBTQ people front and center, which is what we do, I think that it's welcomed by so many who are in the industry. So I think that contributed just to us getting the, the PR that we've had or the recognition that we've had, which is still quite small, but it's a unique standpoint. And there, of course, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that recently, so many brands have been kind of called to task or called into question uh, for their practices. And it has come out, you know, anecdotally as a consumer, I don't have any insider knowledge, but just the lack of diversity in in beauty. And I, I, you know, the more I, you know, the more I am in this industry now and get to know people a little bit, I, I have heard some pretty devastating stories in terms of lack of representation of Black people and really not comfortable place to work either. You know, I think the industry has a long way to go. You know, we're still just a small company. I don't think we're we're really a big player yet. (laughs) But it's so interesting, you know, different from Marcus's experience, what you're saying though, is that whereas there was no black representation in the brewing industry, either in the corporate side or in the consumer side. And so, you know, he really felt like a standalone with a bright light on him when he came into the industry. This is very different because you're talking about people who were really responsible for the success of an industry behind the scenes and then finally being allowed to sort of come to the front of the house, as it were, and be recognized. And like you said before, to see themselves also in the product line where they're not just part of the mix. I think that's fascinating. So now let's go back to this pandemic, the crisis, and how it changed business and expectations for all of us. We're still in the throes of it. New York is doing much better now than uh, much of the the rest of the country. But you're a national brand. Uh, You sell online, you sell everywhere. So I imagine that uh, you still have your challenges. And retail specifically has been challenged in a significant way. But you're an online retailer. Has that helped you through this crisis? Has your model changed at all because of this crisis? And I guess, where were you forced to pivot, if at all? Once again, we were fortunate that our revenue stream was, was primarily from direct-to-consumer sales through our website. My you know, fellow entrepreneurs and friends of mine who have companies, you know, they just reported like, retail orders just canceling one after the other uh, throughout March and April of, or on hold. This was the year, ironically, that I was hoping that we would get into more retailers. And I had started a big push in January and Urban Outfitters was interested, and mm. uh, Nordstrom. Uh, so we were having some success, and I was you know, pleasantly surprised when those two companies went ahead with us and put us in their online stores. 
So Urban Outfitters was super excited to bring us in for their back to school, which I assumed was, I'm not sure, July or August. And this was back in January and February we were talking. And then they come, I guess it was March or April, they just said, hey, let's just get you on our website now while the stores are all closed and we'll figure out the retail, the physical retail later when, when we know what's happening. Wow. Um, and then Nordstrom does a pop-up shop for beauty brands with like indie brands that runs like two or three months in the early fall. So we're going to be launching with them. So that's very exciting. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've had some luck despite it all. And I think certain categories, skincare, for example, and, and nail care have gone way up during the pandemic. You can't go to your manicures. You can't go to your facialist or your dermatologist. So you're doing all that stuff at home. And there's, I think they also have said like candles have sold through the roof or tea, like the whole cozy factor, like I'm at home. And then also there's just the benefit for online in, in that if you're used to just stopping by the store on your way home from work or you're used to, you like the experience of shopping physically and browsing and that kind of thing, and you can't do it, you then develop a new habit and the new habit is online shopping. And you didn't used to like it, but now you're forced to do it and then you get used to it and you realize it's convenient. So a whole lot of people have converted to online shopping that for whatever reason, didn't do it before. Now, operationally, have you been challenged in any different way in terms of procuring product, getting it to market? Did you have warehousing or supply chain issues anywhere along the way? Yeah, I mean, certainly that that's a piece that's tricky right now. Once again, we were fortunate. We just gotten a big new shipment of inventory like in January and February. So the timing just worked out okay for us. But yes, and costs have gone up in a lot of ways for, for certain components and for shipping and things like that. So, Oh, is that right? Yeah, there's some issues, but hmm. you know, we're just kind of taking it, taking it day by day. <laughs> so Grow for Good listeners tend to be professionals who are either looking to start a mission-driven business or looking to add mission to their existing business. With a couple of years under your belt now, can you describe a particular challenge that one might encounter in a mission-driven organization that came as a surprise to you? So this falls under the, I have some experience now and some advice for somebody that wants to move into mission. Anything that surprised you that you can offer to the listeners so that they know that this is a potential hurdle that you didn't anticipate? That's a great question. I think, I mean, I guess I would say I didn't realize, I knew that it was a strength. I knew that our mission and our values would connect with our audience, but I didn't realize how much other people would also respond, I mean, just even to what you're saying, to the idea of a mission-driven business and how important that is. So I think you can get more support, more collaboration, more connections through really talking about and really digging deep into your mission. That is something that I don't think I really knew enough about when I started. And I wish I'd, I'd had a bigger plan for like, how do I really take advantage of the fact that we are a mission-driven band? You know, because on some level, if you're spending money on a product, you know, like you're not going to, if Bennett Jerry's ice cream sucks, you're not going to want to buy it, even if you <laughs> right. like their mission, you know? So you, it is still at the end of the day about the product and that's what matters. And then I think that, right, I think authenticity, uh, you know, I'm surprised at some of the kind of mishaps or <laughs> things that have come up with some brands over the years, you know, and I just think that being honest and transparent and authentic is always important and figuring out how to tell that story and communicate that and uh, own your mistakes. You know, all of that is, is important. And own your mistakes publicly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you need to, you know, if you need to apologize for something. Yeah. I think that there, a lot of companies are struggling with that moment right now and learning on the fly 
And no matter how painful it is, I think that the ones that do lean into acknowledging mistakes in a really transparent and authentic way are the ones that will weather that storm a little bit better than the ones that put out something that seems performative. And that seems to be a consistent theme among founders like you who um, say, I am what I am. I, I know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know, but I'm going to do my best. And the consumer seems to come along for that ride and give a lot more support when you have that sort of openness and authenticity. Yeah, I think it's important. And we can't expect anyone to trust us if we're not honest. Yeah. So the mind of a founder is kind of a fascinating place because vision is hard to capture. And we're all driven by different forces, whether it's notoriety, being an instrument of change, exit strategy, lifestyle, et cetera. What drives you? Do you have a specific vision for growth and where you want to be several years from now? Or are you just building and saying, hey, whatever comes, comes? It's probably a little of both. I would love us to just be a bigger brand in more stores and more accessible and available. I would love for a 13-year-old who is working through issues of gender identity to be able to walk into a Target or a Sephora or an Ulta and see some imagery related to our brand and feel connected to the idea that there are people like me out there or people who I aspire to be that are beautiful and living their best life and expressing themselves authentically without shame. So that's really, that's what drives me, I would say. Beyond that, you know, we just want to keep growing and uh, keep living our values and coming out with good products and trying to just build our audience. Yeah, one foot in front of the other. <laughs> it can be intimidating at times. Uh, startups are tough. And that's always, I just remind myself whenever I feel overwhelmed, it's just you're just selling stuff to people online uh, who like what you have. And also, every day, try to do something that moves your business forward. So my last question, is there a story of how you connected with a customer that really shines light on who you are as a company? A story that sort of resonates with you personally and makes you say, you know what, this is worth the stress, the sleepless nights, making payroll, dealing with the pandemic. This, this is the one story. This is who we are. I mean, there's probably a few of them, but Certainly early on, you know, the early days are the hardest, or at least for us, they were like, is this going to work? How are we going to get out there and compete with these huge brands with huge budgets? And I did, I got an email from a mom that was really special about her. I, I think she had a 12 or 13 year old child who was gender nonconforming. And I don't know how they came across her brand, but they did on Instagram. And for the child's birthday, the mom was getting a bunch of presents and, and just said, you know, it means so much to us that you exist, you know, that this brand exists. And that really does make my heart happy. So before we go, where can our listeners find your products or connect with you on social media and learn more about you? We are at Fluid Beauty on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at www.fluid.us online. Excellent. And we'll be in Nordstrom soon, so go check us out. Oh, I love it. Congratulations for that. Laura, thank you for your time today and the gift of your story. We really appreciate it. So nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moricreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, of course, like us, rate us, review us wherever you download podcasts. 
The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.